Good morning, brothers and sisters. How are you? Uh, today we are continuing this uh, series on the Old Testament. This is part six in this series this semester, looking at how Christ fulfills uh, the great themes of the Old Covenant. Uh, one of the things I suggested is that when you graduate and go out into the parish ministry, many of you will find the kind of a marcionic uh, world of resistance to the Old Testament. And so part of our uh, goal is to help reintroduce people to the importance of the Old Testament in understanding God's work in the world. And we have chosen the four key figures that are most often quoted in the New Testament, Adam, Abraham, Moses, and David, as a way of introducing and reintroducing uh, the great theme of the Old Covenant uh, to the people of God today. We've seen how God uh, calls us to relate to these figures differently as we see how Christ fulfills each of these figures. We spent two weeks on Adam, and then uh, we went on from there to Abraham. We spent quite a bit of time showing how Christ fulfills the great themes of Abraham's life. And today, we finally come to the, uh, the third figure, and that is uh, Moses himself. Uh, Moses, of course, is an unlikely figure in some ways to be the deliverer of Israel. His life uh, is marked by a very, very interesting, miraculous kind of beginning where at the time of his birth, it was decreed that all of the young Hebrew boys would be uh, cast into the river, the Nile River. Uh, his mother, Jochebed, is apparently a very clever, smart lady because she decides she had a way to actually throw him into the river and save him at the same time. So she uh, did throw him into the river, but she put him inside a, a basket uh, covered with pitch and tar, became a little floating ark. And so this ark floats down the Nile and is recovered by, of all people, in the province of God, uh, Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, they, she then finds a wet nurse to, uh, to nurse Moses, and of course the mother was brought. She gets paid to nurse her own child. This woman is pretty smart. And uh, Moses is brought up in the household of Pharaoh, never leaves, loses his heart for his people, and he's actually wired in many ways to be a deliverer. But uh, as often happens, we saw this with Abram especially, all of the catechesis and all of the track laying that God did for Abraham also happens with Moses, because Moses was geared to be a deliverer, and we have that amazing account in Exodus 2 where he actually witnesses uh, firsthand the, uh, the brutality of an Egyptian taskmaster, slave driver over one of his own Israelites. And so Moses, with all the righteous fury that rises up in us in these moments, he decides to take matters in his own hand, become Israel's deliverer to his own strength. He murders the Egyptian and hides him in the sand. This becomes known, and of course, Moses then has to learn how God will bring it about. So Moses is sent into the desert. That's God's school, by the way. For 40 years. Now, some of you may feel like you're in the desert this morning. It's maybe God's school for you. I hope you're in the 39th year and 11th month of it. <laughs> but you don't know. And sometimes God, in fact, many times, God calls us into those difficult places where catechesis can only happen through pain. We see this actually with the big grand story that's unfolding. We'll see this as we see the unfolding of the whole realization of Christ as second Adam keeper of the covenant, sacrifice, prophet, priest, king, new lawgiver, new Israel, suffering servant, 
All of those great themes which Christ fulfills only happens through a lot of pain and suffering. And amazingly, the burning bush happens in the wilderness. And some of you, in the pain and suffering, the wilderness experience you may be in right now, and seminary has a way of kind of causing the wilderness to rise to the surface at times, that you may actually see the burning bush and hear the call of God afresh in your life. And this happens to Moses. And it's great because it re-emphasizes one of the great themes of all these texts is that salvation, this redemptive plan, is God's initiative. This is God's plan. God doesn't, God doesn't say to Moses, I have heard your prayers and I'm responding. He says, I have seen the oppression of my people and I have come down to deliver them. That's the whole basis of the whole incarnation itself, that God himself comes down to deliver us. So Moses has been under God's catechesis, under his training for 40 years. And at this point, when God calls from the burning bush, what is, we find a different Moses. This is not the man who murdered the, the Egyptian. This man who says, Lord, who am I to go? Before, he'd already appointed himself. Now he says, who am I to go? He says, Lord, uh, I'm, I'm a faltering speech. What if they don't believe me? All the kind of questions which we should appropriately ask in God's presence. And then God says to Moses what he would say to every one of us. It really hasn't changed in terms of authenticating your ministry or his. He gives Moses three things. He gives him his name, which of course is the character of God. He gives him his power and authority. And he gives him uh, his, his, uh, his strength, his, his name, his, his, uh, his word. And think about it. When you go into ministry with all of our own inadequacies, all of our own reasons why we can't do it, shouldn't do it, might not do it, no one will accept us, all those things which come into our minds, it's good to be reminded when you answer the call of God that the only thing that any of us ever have in actually walking into places of ministry, would be mission work, preaching, counseling, whatever God's called you to, is those three things, his name, his authority, and his word. That's what sustains all of us in ministry. Well, he, then we bring us to the main point of this passage, which our text today, which is this whole, how the New Testament, how the, the Old Testament deals with the whole Passover Red Sea sequence. This becomes, of course, the great paradigm of Israel's deliverance. Next time we'll look at the, the law and how Moses also fulfills, Christ fulfills the law. But it's through the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea that an amazing thing happens. They leave Egypt a group of freed slaves, or slaves, even not even that really, slaves on the run. They pass through the Red Sea. On the other side, they become the people of God at Mount Sinai under covenant with God. This is an amazing transition. This becomes the defining identity marker for what it means to be a Jewish person. A whole Red, the Passover Red Sea sequence becomes enshrined in their history, repeated in their history as the defining moment. In fact, in the text, it actually says in Exodus 12, 1, he doesn't say what you might expect him to say in the Hebrew. This is your Passover, you know, where the angel passes over your house because you put the, door, the blood of the doorframe. He said, this is the Lord's Passover. In other words, this is not just about the festival. This is the Lord's appointed sacrificial victim. It's important to see that in the text. The Lord spends great time explaining precisely how to prepare and select the sacrificial lamb 
the spotless lamb, the blood, and what's to be done with the blood so they too could be exempt from this act of judgment. Amazing sequence. Now, I had the privilege of, of growing up in an Orthodox Jewish community in Atlanta, Georgia. We were the only Christians uh, within a, a big distance from where we lived. It was all Jews, Orthodox Jews in our community. Our, my father built our house not knowing that right across the street they were building a huge Orthodox synagogue. So we, I, was, we were, I was immersed in a Jewish community. Uh, you know, my school, where I went, we didn't celebrate Christmas. We had Hanukkah celebrations. We, we had matzah bread or uh, unleavened bread during the Passover, etc. When Sukkot came around, uh, the, the Feast of, of uh, Tabernacles or Booths, uh, all my friends got to, they all would go outside and construct these outdoor houses to live in for eight days. Now, to me, I was like, hey, any religion that allows you to go outside and get camp for eight days, I... I want to sign me up. I thought it was so cool the way they, uh, they, they you know, we, we were immersed in the rhythms of the whole Jewish year. I grew up, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Hanukkah, Purim is actually right now for them in Passover. This was like, like we would do the church years, the rhythms of the daily life of my life growing up as a young person. And the Passover was an amazing event. To this day, it's an amazing event. If you haven't been to a Seder meal, especially a, a and with the Jewish people in a Seder meal, where they recall the whole event, and the youngest child asks the questions. The whole thing is so powerful. And to this day, they recount this as the central act of God's deliverance for the people of God. So when Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, one of the texts read for us, has this amazing moment where he suddenly cries out, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Isn't that amazing? And here's Paul taking the central act of their deliverance and saying it was Christ. Christ is our new Passover lamb. Christ has been sacrificed for us. This is the, now the new great marker of deliverance for us. And later, of course, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, as we heard read, he unfolds the whole thing. He takes the whole sequence we've looked at, Christ the Passover lamb, he, then they go through the Red Sea. This is their baptism. That's why they go through as freed slaves. They end up as the people of God. This is their baptism, he says, when they pass the Red Sea. The manna is Christ come down from heaven. The, he says that rock was Christ. The rock where the water came, it was Christ. See, Paul is now re-hearing, re-listening, rethinking about his whole past as a devout Jew, but now seeing the whole thing in light of what God has done in a central way the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, my experience for us, we normally think about Christ's death as, you know, kind of moving from the point of the death and resurrection, kind of going forward and washing over us. And we say things, as the New Testament does, we died with Christ, we were raised with Christ. Those are all languages that we use to describe how what Christ did back then is not just something we remember, like an event in the past, but it's something that God actually infuses our life now in. We died with Christ. We were raised with him. But you must see that, of course, when Christ dies on the cross, when this central event, cross and resurrection, occurs, the ripples go every direction, don't they? You see, this becomes it's like a rock in the middle of a lake. The ripples not only come forward to us, but they also go backwards. They, they go back and re-redeem and re-authenticate all that God had done preparing for the cross. And one of the great things that happens when you 
when you are a Jewish person who receives the gospel, as we see in the New Testament and we see today, is that you never have to give up Passover to receive Christ. You see, because you realize it's all one great event. My mother, who is the, the family evangelist par excellence, my mother never saw someone she wasn't prepared to evangelize, and God used my mother to bring to Christ the son of the rabbi in our village, in, in Atlanta, where I was. And I'll never forget, Reuben Green was his name, Reuben Green coming out of his house, we'd pick him up for Bible studies, and have his Bible in a paper bag. But what happened through all that experience was that he discovered that Christ had actually fulfilled and had completed everything he had hoped for as a Jew. He was a better Jew than he ever had been before Christ. That's what Christ does. It makes you better than whatever you ever were. And this is what happened to the people of God. In fact, in the early church, when they, when they discussed the, the Apostles' Creed, based on the old Roman Creed, there were early patristic writers who, who wished the first line of the Creed was this. Not simply, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, but they said, we ought to also say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, who led Israel up out of Egypt. And the point being, they didn't want the church to ever forget, though that phrase didn't come to us through the Roman Creed, but they didn't want us to ever forget that our narrative is not disconnected from their narrative. The same God that sent Jesus Christ into the world is the same God who led Israel to the Red Sea. Indeed, Jesus was the one who led the way. This is the great insight of the New Testament. In fact, all that's happening is the great, what I call the great chiasm of redemption, the great way God is taken when he, back we saw in Genesis 12, this is like, what, three sermons ago, Genesis 12, 3, from the very beginning, God laid out his vision. He was going to redeem all nations, Genesis 12, 3, so that the choosing of Israel was the first fruits of this plan to reach all nations. And then eventually it became the, the, the remnant of Israel. And then finally, it all comes down to one man, the one true Israelite, who has to carry the whole thing and keep the whole covenant. And eventually, we have the renewed Israel, and we have the, the church of Jesus Christ, and eventually, we have Revelation 7, 9, the people of God for the ends of the earth. And so we see that God's plan has never changed. It was always pointing us toward Christ it means fulfilled through Christ. I actually have a little slide to show you. You can see this great chiasm redemption that essentially captures what God is doing through the whole sequence of all these sermons. There, when God originally said in, Revelation, in Genesis 12, 3, he was going to call all nations. That never has changed. And though Israel, and eventually the remnant of Israel, all that had to go through all that pain and suffering and difficulty and trials in order to finally come to Jesus Christ. And we look back at all the troubles of Israel. It's all been repeated in the church. We've gone off the rails a hundred times. We forget the gospel every other generation. We mess it up in a thousand ways. But God keeps unfolding his plan. Eventually, he will unfold Revelation 7-9 as he originally said in Genesis 12-3. Well, the other beautiful thing about this whole passage I wanted to read for you is what happens in Hosea 11.1. 1. Because when Christ is born, it's, it's very important in the sequence to have this flight to Egypt. 
Because by going to Egypt, and of course we recognize that Christ comes out of Egypt, and of course Hosea 11.1, one, out of Egypt I called my son. It's a very unique kind of way it's worded there in the Hebrew. They pick up on that in Matthew. Christ comes out of Egypt. He's recapitulating the whole Exodus is now the one true Israelite. But you have to also realize what this looks like from being an Egyptian. Because if you're an Egyptian, it's really tough reading the Bible. Because if you're an Egyptian, you know, you're always bad news. You know, when it came right down to it, you know, you're the one that enslaved God's people. You're the one that caused all these problems. Even afterwards, whenever they got into trouble, the prophet's like, don't go down to Egypt. You know, they're a splintered rod that'll pierce your hand. You know, Egypt is always the problem. And so what's it like to be an Egyptian? But see, don't forget, in, the, in Genesis 12, 3, all families, you know, that Kol Mishpahod and Kol Goye, all families, all nations will be redeemed. Egypt is not excluded. Egypt is part of God's plan too, thanks be to God. And what a great work God's doing in Egypt today. And so here are the Egyptians who have a, kind of a narrative over their head. Think about it. A very difficult narrative. And suddenly when it comes, when the Messiah finally comes, God said, we're going to accomplish two things at one time. Not only will Christ come out of Egypt, but the very point when the Messiah is most vulnerable and will be put to death, guess who becomes the caretakers of the Messiah? Guess who protects his life? Egypt. They flee to Egypt for the, for the safety of the Messiah. So now even Egypt has been redeemed to this whole process. So the whole thing is amazing demonstration of God revealing his love for the nations. What does all this mean for us? Well, it helps us, we must learn and relearn to see the whole gospel through a great missional lens. That we are participants with God in redeeming the world. One of the points we made all along is why did Jesus not come in Genesis 3.15? Why wasn't Satan chained to the bottomless pit, you know, back in Genesis chapter 4? The reason is because God will not have us mere spectators of his work. He is called to be co-victors with him. And the only way to be co-victors with him is to walk through all of this pain and suffering. We have to walk through that as Abraham did, as Moses did, as we do, as the church has done that we might become co-victors with him. He doesn't want to do it without us. We become called a part of his co-victory in the world. But also, this is a challenge for us. We live in a day when the world has completely lost this vision, of course. They have no knowledge of this. Think about it. Today, the entire glorious eschaton, the great, glorious, eternal communion with God the Father has been collapsed into your retirement plan. Think about it. If there's no life after this one, you have to actually think how to think through your whole life creating the image of God, which that echo is in the back of everyone's head. You have to find out how to create meaning and purpose into this life. So they recreate like a little miniature eschaton. You, know, you work and you have your job and then you retire. And the, and the eschaton, the best eschaton they can imagine would be, oh, I don't know, a condo on the beach, uh, golf, playing golf every day, and a good IRA. Really? Really? Has the world moved their whole worldview into that thimble-sized vision? Really? 
You see what an opportunity we have as a people of God to reintroduce the world to what it's really all about? See, because the church, if the world has lost the eschaton, we have decoupled the church from its mission. And so we kind of think church is about us and our, you know, feeling great about everything and not realizing our whole purpose is for those out there who have not yet heard the good news of the gospel. So the tragedy today is that we as a church have to reconnect with the mission of God. We are not spectators to God's work. We're co-victors with him. So that's, in my mind, what it means to be elected by God. We're not elected to simply revel in our salvation. We're elected to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what election is at its root. We're elected to become those who rearticulate the gospel to the world. Not so we can just be saved, but we can be agents and ambassadors of Christ to the world. That's what Moses teaches us. Moses became the great pioneer deliverer, leading people who knew nothing else to a much greater vision for what God had for them. And what a great message we have. The triune God is putting an end to all sin. Wow. Consummating his great glorious reign. He's crushing all rebellion under his feet. All human trafficking and everything like that will finally be overturned. Nothing in the world can do that. The gospel is going to do it. Broken lives will be made whole. Hallelujah. Every tear will be wiped away. The last will be first. The first will be last. Guess what? God speaks the last word. All injustice will be righted. The glorious banquet will be served. The door of the Father's house will be flung open wide. And the lame and the beggars and the harlots and the disenfranchised and the sinners will be welcomed into the feast. That's the Heskaton. Satan, the roaring lion, will finally be silenced. You'll never hear about ISIS again. Death will be vanquished. The nations will be redeemed. And God will be all in all. That's where we're headed. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. We thank you, O Lord, that you have summoned us to be a part of this great unfolding plan of salvation. We thank you that your people marching through the Red Sea, being delivered on that Passover night, Lord, even this is re- was pointing to your great deliverance. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us keep the feast. Let us keep it in our lives, through how we live, how we pray, and how we gloriously live out and declare the good news of the gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen.